so I'm going to talk for 15 minutes. As you know, we're talking about peacemaking. Uh, we began our little series, Dress for Battle, last week. I'm talking about peacemaking in the Old Testament this week. Nath, Nathan Jones, that is, uh, is talking about peacemaking in the New Testament next week. And uh, we're going to follow exactly the same thing. I'm going to talk for 15 minutes, and on 13 minutes, there's going to be some flashing lights like that. And on 15 minutes, they're just going to go out altogether like that. Okay, so there you go. So then uh, you've got in your news sheet uh, uh, some paper, yeah, and hopefully a pen. So the I our idea is that we're going to play some a uh, bit of music, and I think Jill and um, yeah, uh, various others, all sorts of. Uh, people are, um, are, are going to collect in any questions you want to ask vaguely related to this theme. <laughs> okay, so uh, I'm going to talk for just 15 minutes and Jim is going to work, as I say, with Jill uh, at the end of that, collecting things in. So, it's 15 minutes. We're not going to put a countdown clock because we've done that before, and everybody watches the clock and doesn't listen to a thing, and then there are no questions. So, uh, so okay, right. Uh, well, uh, hang on. Yeah, 15 minutes. Let's start the 15 minutes. Okay, so last week we talked about peacemaking, but we have a real problem when we come to the Old Testament. The problem is simply this, that the church, if you like, the people of Israel, God's people, really do look like they're dressed for battle. Here's, um, here's just one reading from 1 Samuel chapter 15. Samuel, the prophet, said to Saul, the king, um, I am the one uh, the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people of Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they uh, waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Genocide. Um, Here's another one. There's endless of these, actually. Well, perhaps not endless, but there, there's, there's more than we've got time for. Joshua chapter 8. Then the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Isn't it fantastic how we use those verses in Sunday schools and things? Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you and go up and attack Ai. For I've delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. You shall do to Ai and its kings as you did to Jericho. They just slaughtered them and its king. Except that you may carry off their plunder and livestock for yourself. In other words, kill the people, keep the livestock. Uh, good move. Set an ambush behind the city. So Joshua and the whole army moved out to attack Ai. Ai. When Israel had finished killing all the men of Ai in the fields and in the wilderness where they had chased them, and when every one of them had been put to the sword, all the Israelites returned to Ai and killed those who were still in the city. 12,000 men and women fell that day, all the people of Ai. That's our issue. Our holy text, the Bible, as you well know, has many, many violent texts in it. In actual fact, because I've read both the Bible and the Quran, I can tell you, I can tell you without doubt that the Bible is a much more bloodthirsty book taken as a whole than the Quran is. So we best face up to that rather than ignoring it. 
you know, let's turn off the light, turn off the switch and pretend it didn't happen and it's not going on. We're in a better place to deal with reality if we turn back on the light and look very hard. What we need is a love revolution, which is what I talked about last week. But how do you get that out of the Old Testament? There's this view around that I've, um, I've articulated before that somehow, you know, God's a blighter in the Old Testament. There he is telling them, I command you, says the Lord. This isn't their idea. They don't have this idea. God says, go and slaughter the Amalekites. God says, go and support, uh, slaughter the people of Ai. Do as I commanded you. And there's this view that God is rather nasty in the Old Testament and then, you know, between the Old and New Testaments, as I often say, he went on some kind of alpha course and he turns out to be a really loving guy in the New Testament. He somehow goes through a giant character change. But it's more complicated than that. We've said previously, but I realise some of you are new to the church here, that the Bible's a library, not a book. We know it's a library because it says so on the front cover. The word Bible means library, it does not mean book. And inside the front cover it says that there are 67 books in this Bible. There are 67 books in the library. When you go to a library, you approach it completely differently to the way you approach a book. When you pick up a book, you, uh, you expect chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 35 and 55 to be saying the same thing and building on one another. When you go into a library, you go there simply to hear different voices, different opinions, different expressions of the way things are. The Bible is a library, as any French speaker knows. It's a library of books with different opinions, different persuasions different outlooks, different bits of advice. To read it simplistically isn't the same thing as studying it. And people who pull Bible verses out, do you know someone like that who just is always shoving a Bible verse at you? That's a tragedy because to take a text out of its context is a pretext for making it say whatever you choose to make it say. The question is, when you're as old as me as it's just been revealed, what you're looking for is people who understand what they're saying in the context of everything else. We've just prayed about the troubles in our country. Half the trouble in our country is taking a text out of context and using it as a pretext. We weaponize it against somebody who has a different view to us. Don't do that with the Bible. So, the Bible is more complicated than the, in the Old Testament God's bad and in the New Testament he clears up his act. Here is another text, an ancient text uh, from uh, the Bible, um, Psalm 103. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. We looked at that last week. Here's another one. God, he, God has shown you, O mortal, what's good. And what does the law require of you except to act justly and to love mercy? How does God get these words out if he's the same God that's slaughtering the Amalekites and the people of Ai? Is there not some inconsistency there? Now, Paul, the apostle, leaping ahead to the New Testament when we're supposed to be talking about the Old Testament, and Jesus... Paul of Tarsus being a follower of Jesus of Nazareth, of course, was what we call a second temple Jew. Unless you know what second temple Judaism is, it is impossible 
One, to understand the Old Testament, and two, to understand pretty well anything Jesus said, and definitely anything Paul wrote. Which is why the New Testament is used to exclude people constantly. It's used as a tool on people that we don't like because we don't know what Second Temple Judaism is. But I take it almost for granted that no one in this building does know what Second Temple Judaism is. And that's our problem. Very, very quickly, First Temple Judaism is simply this. The people arrive in the land of, of, of Israel, their promised land, and they've been traveling with a tent, which they call the tabernacle. And they used to pitch the tent, and there they believed that the glory of God was, the presence of God was in this tent. They called it the Shekinah. That's the Hebrew word for God's presence. So they arrive in the land, and David the king, who wrote these words, has the, oh, not these words, those words, he has a great idea. It's build a temple where God's presence will be, with the Holy of Holies, the place where God will be. So his son, uh, um, his son Samson gets, uh, his son Solomon, not Samson, gets around to beginning to run this project, do this project. But then the, uh, the country falls to the Babylonians and the temple is completely destroyed. So a guy called Nehemiah and his uh, friend Ezra, they uh, start to rebuild a second temple, the second temple. But things don't go very well because there's ongoing trouble in the country and then they get invaded again and then the Greeks arrive and then the Romans arrive and you get up to where Paul and Jesus are alive and the second temple is built but it's never really finished. I haven't got time to tell you the history of the second temple but everyone feels that God's Shekinah, God's glory has never descended into this second temple especially as it was completed by a puppet king. We've heard lots about vassal states this week, but Israel had become a vassal state and Herod was a puppet king, the puppet client king of the Romans. He wasn't really in charge. We've heard lots of that um, from various politicians this week. And so the second temple was a sham. People felt that God, who'd done great things for Israel in the past, they were waiting for him to do something new in the future, but it all gone wrong and the Shekinah wasn't there in the temple. And so Jesus arrives and people think he's the Messiah. The Messiah wasn't God, necessarily. The Messiah was just the individual leader that would lead the country out of the mess that it was in and bring some kind of unity and peace and set the country free. Paul is convinced that Jesus isn't the Messiah because Messiahs need to be alive to lead, but Jesus had been killed on a cross. A dead Messiah, no Messiah, a useless Messiah. But Paul, and Paul, being a second temple Jew, hung on to this passage. Isaiah 25 is a phenomenal passage in the Old Testament, and all second temple Jews, including Jesus, dwelt on this particular text a lot. On this mountain, back in Israel, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich foods for all peoples. Israel knew that even though their story was broken and gone wrong and their temple wasn't quite filled with God's glory, one day, somehow, through them, all people will be blessed. 
a banquet of aged wine, the best meats and the finest wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Well, there are loads of other texts like that, but that one was the key one. But here's another one, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6. The wolf will lie down with the lamb, the leopard will lie with the goat, the calf will lie with the lion and the yearling together. A little child would lead them. And people like Saul, Paul, who was to be, hang on to this. Something's going to happen. And they were hoping Jesus would be the Messiah, but he wasn't the Messiah, which is why Paul is persecuting, Paul, Saul, is persecuting the followers of Jesus the way because they're just diluting Judaism and Second Temple Judaism further because this guy isn't going to help anyone. He's dead. But then Paul meets Jesus, resurrected Jesus on that road to Damascus. It, though Paul constantly says, we preach Christ crucified, he, we misunderstand him. That's a text out of context. It was because of the resurrection that Christ crucified became worth following. Because Paul slowly works out, God has done what he promised through Jesus, death has been swallowed up forever. That's the point. He suddenly gets it on this Damascus road. The, the, the Messiah has to die and then be raised and death is swallowed up forever. And if that bit's come true, it's all come true. And Isaiah 25, the leading second temple Judaism text is now fulfilled. So you can now pin your hopes on Jesus because he will bring all that to be. The temple had become a place of exclusion, actually. But through Jesus, there was hope for everyone. All this was true. So, the Jews always believed that God had been with them in the past. He led them out of slavery, out of bondage, through, um, through into the promised land. They called it the Exodus, didn't they? The Exodus from slavery into hope. But then the story's gone wrong. Two minutes to go. Now the, the story's gone wrong. But now it's coming right again. Because as Jesus rises from the dead, he demonstrates he truly is the Messiah. And this is all true. This is now the new exodus. Finally, the whole planet is leaving slavery and bondage and fear and shame and guilt. Finally, hope is dawning on everyone. So, Paul is, of course, someone who is dressed for battle, but he's dressed for a different kind of battle. Instead of persecuting people with a sword now, armed with love, love never fails. He said, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, I have nothing, but love never fails. Love is everything. And so, he's plunged into a new battle, a battle which is about inclusion, for all peoples, everyone. That's why we do inclusion of LGBT people. That's why we fight about BME. That's why we do these things. Not because we're addicted to some. These are just symptoms of the outworking of this extraordinary statement that from now on, everyone, every single person is in because Jesus has swallowed up death 
and he is the leader of the new exodus. And through the Old Testament, these things are held in balance. These different opinions in the Old Testament there, yeah, there are some draconian old views, but slowly in these texts I've shown you, there's this new dawning, this new hope. God desires mercy, not uh, bloody warfare. That's what he's after. And in the end, this comes true. It's going to come true when he swallows up death. And Jesus is the way he does it. So we're dressed for battle. But it's not with guns. It's a battle with love. And now I've finished. (laughs) Great. So, okay, there are loads of questions, and they fall into two categories, really. Uh, Thus far, well, I'm not going to get, oh, okay. Uh, All right, okay. This one said, what was Second Temple Judaism again? Summary again, please. Right, okay. Uh, But most of them say things like this. Why did God supposedly say these violent things in the first place? What's the purpose of the violent bits in the Bible? Why are they there? Did God actually say, kill all the women and children? Did, is, do they actually think that was what God said? Another one says, but I still don't get why 12,000 people had to be killed. So there's, I mean, they just go on uh, lots and lots and lots of questions saying, so why are all the violent bits in the Bible there? Anyway, then there's this, so what was Second Temple Judaism again? And then there's two, uh, two others which are different. One says, how can we help the, the young people involved um, in, uh, in youth violence fight this battle? Great question. And, and the other one says, so if all this is true, how do we bring about peace? So why are the violent bits in the Bible uh, there? They're there because, uh, well, if... If you read the Bible, at, at, at the, um, at the um, most conservative, on the most conservative view, the books of the Bible were written across the course of one and a half thousand years. In other words, the worldview of um, Judges and the worldview of Joshua and the worldview of the Pentateuch, Leviticus, and etc., etc., is not the same worldview as the later prophets. Um, if you look at beyond back more than eight hundred, more than about eight centuries before Jesus arrived, most of the understanding was picked up through that kind of vi- those kind of violent texts I talked about. Not just wars, of course, but draconian things that were supposed to happen to people if they sinned in this way or sinned in that way. Um, But as the Old Testament progresses, though there are different voices and these things never happen smoothly, as you know from debate in our society, you get on to Micah and you get to Hosea and you get to Isaiah and a different voice emerges altogether, which is why I quoted Micah, what God requires is mercy, not slaughter, not sacrifice, not all of these things. There's a journey. But the journey is bumpy and lumpy, like the journey in our own generation to allow women into leadership in churches. It's bizarre, isn't it? But think how lumpy that journey has been and still is in some churches. Or 
the thing that you kindly referred to earlier, the journey for inclusion of LGBT people. Think how lumpy and difficult it is. So you can't say of 2018 the church believes this or the church believes that. Actually, the church is struggling with all of these things and slowly moving forwards and backwards and etc., etc. So why do people put into God's mouth you know, the Lord said, go and slaughter these people, for the same reason that people still today will say, you're a gay man, you can't take communion. The Lord says, you are are a woman, the Lord is clear, you cannot be a bishop. Indeed, one of the problems that the church faces, and has always faced, and as these texts make clear to us, In society, people would debate. In religious circles, they debate and add God's name to their view. And that's all that's happening here. These writers are saying what they think and God becomes the place of reference for it. I put it to you that in our society, we still do exactly the same. Far too often. My view is my view. But when I tell you I've heard directly from God, then I think you have good cause to question my integrity. Our church here, you know, isn't built on somebody, me or others, standing up at the front and telling you what you should believe. Like you would have heard me say endless times, a good sermon isn't a sermon that you go, wow, that's good and what great illustrations. It's something that gets you thinking. So why did these things happen in in this reported way in some parts, some parts of the Old Testament, not all of it? Because that was the level of moral consciousness back then. Why, when I was at school, I was telling some people this week, in my school, they used to give public canings because they thought it would help improve your intellectual capacity, I think. Why did they publicly cane people in schools run by Christians? Why do some churches still exclude a person because of their sexuality and then say it was God leading them? We're on a journey, aren't we? We're on a journey, slow. The Bible is an honest library because it records what actually happened and what people actually thought. So how do you teach these difficult passages? I think you teach them in this way. They're not difficult at all once you understand that God is at work through the Bible, but it's human beings that are writing. And you're picking up their personality and their insight and their political opinions and views. Some of you have been in this church long enough to know that illustration I often use. There's there's two passages, one in Kings and one in Chronicles, of the same account, uh, the same account, Different accounts of exactly the same event. King David takes a census of the people. The book of Kings, the book of Samuel rather, it's in Samuel and it's in Chronicles. The book of Samuel is a southern-based book. You know that that Israel divided into two, two sections. The south, the rich south that became known as Judah, and the, and the poor north that 
that um, sought independence and went under their own stream of kings and broke away from David's line of kings. Twelve tribes in the northern bit, the two tribes down south. So Israel, in part of the Old Testament, isn't referring to the whole of Israel. It became the name of the top half, which then became Samaria later because they built a new capital city called Samaria. And those, those who were who the Samaritans were. And that's why the Jews hated the Samaritans. And that's why Jesus told the story. The nation split in two. But, what, but Samuel, the books of Samuel, are history books written by supporters of the Davidic line of kings and the south. So they say of this census, David took a census of the people because he was inspired by God. But... Chronicles, which was written up north and is politically biased towards the north, says David took a census because it was inspired by Satan. You read it, it's there. It's there. Was he inspired by God or was he inspired by Satan? Once you know it's a library, this is no longer confusing. These are different views. Is Brexit inspired by God or inspired by Satan? <laughs> do you see it depends where you sit uh, flashing lights mean I should at least uh, try to deal with the other questions I was, gonna, I was going to stop after 10 minutes explain what te uh, second temple Judaism was again Jesus was a second temple Jew all the Jews from the return of the people from exile as the second temple was built and then messed up and destroyed and then the, the Greeks walked in and, you know, they sacrificed a pig in the temple. It was called the abomina abom abomination of desolation. It was, a, uh, it, it was a king called Antiochus Epiphanes who did that, and then a guy called Judas Maccabeus led the people in a, a revolt of independence. This is all, this bit now is between the testaments, and then that's uh, um, put down, and the Greeks are back in charge, and then the Persians for a bit, uh, a little bit through influence, and finally the Romans take over, and Jesus, and then later, of course, Jesus about you know, anything between um, six to ten years older than Paul. Um, that they were, they were born uh, at that time, and they are Second Temple Jews. They long for Israel to be restored. The popular people see this as a militaristic thing. But Jesus is always saying, no, um, peace will be destroyed, dis, uh, uh, brought back, not by the sword, but through love. Lay down your swords. He who lives by the sword will die by the sword. Choose a different way. Paul doesn't, Saul doesn't get that. Do you know that's his Hebrew name, Saul? Paul is his Greek name. It's not that Saul get, became a Christian and they swapped his name to Paul. He was always Paul and he was always Saul. And, and if you read the Acts of the Apostles carefully, which most people don't, the names are used interchangeably. It's not that one gets dumped for the other. Um, Paul is a Jew, hence Saul, but he's a Hellenized Jew. Uh, that means a Greek-thinking Jew because he came from Tarsus, and so he's got a Greek-Roman uh, Greek name as well. But he's against Jesus, not because Jesus is the Messiah. Saul wants a Messiah to liberate Israel. But what he's looking for is a Messiah who's going to achieve this through killing people. So that's why he's persecuting Jesus and his followers, not because they follow a Messiah, 
but because they were following the wrong kind of Messiah and they're going to dilute Judaism at the very moment when it needs a strong identity under pressure from the Roman um, imperial forces. When he meets Jesus, the risen Jesus, thank you, Jim, on the, thank you very much. Um, when, he, when he meets Jesus, when he meets Jesus on the road, he realizes, Paul realizes that he's been persecuting the wrong guy. And that though Jesus had died on a cross, in Corinthians, Paul even writes, a quote in Deuteronomy, cursed is anyone who dies on a tree. That's why Paul didn't just preach Christ crucified, cursed. He says this is a laughing, laughing matter to Gentiles, and it's a stumbling block to all the Jews. You can't have a Messiah that died in a crucifixion. It's ridiculous. But when Paul says we preach crucified... Well, he says it all in, in, uh, in, um, at the end of the book of um, the, the, the first letter to um, the Corinthians. He does it, you remember, well, perhaps you don't remember. He says, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, we're the least of all people. We're the most to be pitied. He's saying the crucifixion on its own is a fiasco. But Jesus is risen from the dead. He's swallowed up death. And there's a different way of doing life, and it's Jesus' way, and it's the way of love, and it's the way of going the extra mile, laying down uh, your arms. It's the way of embracing people, washing people's feet. And Jesus takes his own medicine, and as he hangs on the cross, that's his greatest example of soaking up the anger of the world. It wasn't God's anger that killed Jesus. God wasn't angry with us. God is love. So he wasn't taking it out on Jesus, I'll punish Jesus, so then I can forgive you. You know all those terrible hymns, in my view, though everybody loves the tunes, about on the cross, the wrath of God is satisfied. God is love. He's not got wrath to get satisfied. He's love. On the cross, Jesus didn't soak up the anger of God. On the cross, Jesus soaked up the anger of and the hypocrisy and the jealousy of all those around him. And he returned it not with a blow or a gun or a pistol or a sword. He returned it with love. And he chose a different way, which leads us very neatly and briefly onto these two. So if all that's true, how do we bring about peace? I think it's obvious. You cross the road, you have a cup of tea with someone, you knock on your next door neighbor's door, you take take them out, buy someone a bottle of wine. You care about someone who's other than you, different to you. It starts after this service, actually, because as we have coffee, don't hang around with all the people the same as you. Do you know? We're this little group of people and we hang around together. Go seek someone who's different to you, younger than you, older than you. Invest in them, build a bridge. That's how get peace gets made. I think I've told some of you before, I've worked as a I worked for nearly a decade as a special advisor to the United Nations. So I've sat in, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in, in New York and Geneva and Vienna. They're the three big bases for the, um, for the UN. I've sat in those rooms and I've watched it. It's the same thing. Cross the room. Talk, smile at someone. Begin a relationship. Find out what they're thinking instead of sit behind your desk with a frown on your face sending emails and bits of paper. It's called an act of war. But to embrace someone is an act of love. So how can we help the young people involved in youth violence fight this battle? Well, 
Well, I think we are, first of all. You know, don't you, that this secondary school here is something we should boast about. We say it a lot. It's the best secondary school in London. It outperforms all the grammar schools, all the grammar schools in Kent. It outperforms. It's in the very top elite number of schools in the country. You know, in the top ten, top five probably. I, I don't know, you know, because it depends how you calculate. You know, that's why you can't be... I can't be sure. Even when you say it's the best school in London, there'd be another one that say, ah, oh, marginally ahead on you on that. But the point is, it's great. Now, why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because this school, you know, in the news this week, it said um, exclusions in deprived areas, deprived community, are up 70%. Did you all see that in the press this week? Yeah, well, it was a big figure out there, up 72%, actually. And, uh, you know, you exclude the bottom 16, 17, 18%, and then you get great GCSE results. It happens all over London and everywhere. Exclude the kids, get great GCSE results. In the six years, this is the sixth year of operation of this secondary school, only two children have ever been excluded. And they've been excluded for their own good as well as everyone else's and cared for through the process not thrown out. And we had Damon Hines, you know, he's the Secretary of State for Education, last week, week before, I think, uh, pitch up to see what's going on, because it's so outstanding. And uh, Carly, who's brilliant, who, as you know, is a head teacher, instead of lining up the best uh, academic kids in the school, he had lunch with, with young people. Each one of them had been excluded from a different school in London, and all have found a home here. And none of them are involved in gang violence. And though there are kids in this school who tragically have seen people shot or stabbed, they are held safely. We work in the A&E, as you know, with kids who have been stabbed and shot and whatever, and have done that across the decade. Um, so you know we do that work. But that's like emergency intervention when everything else goes wrong. How do you stop youth violence? Befriend someone. Get to know some kids on the bus. I'd take the bus to school, mostly, so I can talk to kids from our school and others. I had this great conversation the other day with uh, two kids about their life and etc. And I know that if I invest some time, I help create a hedge around them. We all have that opportunity. We're going to talk about the New Testament next week. But we're dressed for battle, but it's a battle that's raged with love. Let me pray for you, and then I'll hand you over to Simon in the back. Father, we thank you for what happened in Saul, Paul's life, that he saw that because Jesus is the Messiah, a different kind of Messiah, a most unlikely Messiah, a Messiah, a leader, a world leader who wins with peace by soaking up the blows and not returning them, by washing feet, by being a doormat, by offering himself, by emptying himself, by giving himself, by including all. We thank you that Paul saw it suddenly and his life was changed from one of violence to one of love. Help us to see it too. In our actions this week, this day,
with our friends and neighbours, our mums and our dads, our grandparents, our aunts and our uncles, our children, estranged children, children who are at home, in our marriage relationships, in our ex-marriage relationships, in our hopeful relationships. Teach us the way of love. And Lord, we know this, because we've learnt it through the years, that we find it so hard to love when we don't feel loved. And so I invite each one of you in this moment, not so much to stop and think about who you'll share this way of the cross with, laying down your life. But in this moment, know this truth. God is love. Love never ends. God's love for you never ends. You are love.